Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Fourth Gunman, written by Merle Constantiner. Gun Trouble in a Town Targeted for Takeover George Netfield, proprietor of Kirkville's leading saloon, was a calm, deliberate man, a man who knew what he wanted. And what he wanted most was to root out the rustlers that wanted to make a ghost town out of brawling, prosperous Kirkville. The forces he opposed were ruthless and clever, so much so that they fooled the very ranch owner they were robbing. Even the owner's daughter, Cimarron, thought Netfield was in the wrong, and he was desperately in love with her. Every step he took to protect her drove her further away. Without the help of the victims, Netfield had to find a way to unmask the marauders and catch them red-handed in their cattle swindle. If he succeeded, he knew Cimarron would hate him forever. And if he failed, Netfield knew there'd be wholesale slaughter in Kirkville and that he'd be the first to get a six-gun send-off. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Fourth Gunman. Chapter 1 George Netfield sat at his desk in the back room of the Blue Banner, frowning. In a few minutes, if things went wrong, if the red-haired kid panicked and went into action, he might very possibly find himself a dead man. It wasn't this that was bothering him, though. What really bothered him was that something was happening that he didn't understand. The Blue Banner was not Kirkville's largest saloon, but, in an unpretentious way, it was the town's most profitable. It was coldly and ruthlessly respectable. For minor difficulties, it had a good man and its bartender, Clyde Gilday. In moments of emergency, which were few, it had Netfield, its owner. It was one of the summer's hottest evenings. Netfield had just finished supper at the Jerome house. Now, very carefully, he lighted a crooked, oily cigar. He was a pensive man in his middle thirties, always drably dressed. Four years ago, he had come from his home in Baxter Springs, Kansas, to this Montana country. He had seen lonesome prairies and badlands come wildly alive with ranches and cattle. Kirkville, when he arrived, was little more than a sod store and a barrel of whiskey. Now, it was a thriving, violent, wealthy stock center. Golden light from the lamp bathed his big horse jaw. Smells and sounds came to him. The smells and sounds of an oven-like night in a busy cattle town. The odor of horse urine and chaff from the stables, the bellowing and jingling from Main Street, and closer at hand, the saloon odors of cowboy hair oil and bready, ancient beer. Netfield was waiting for Clyde Gilday, and he waited patiently. At eight o'clock, Clyde came through the door from the front room, letting in behind him a garble of voices from the evening trade, cutting them off as he closed the door. He was a square-built rocky man, pale and gray-haired, blunt-tongued and bitter. He liked but one man in the world, Netfield. Netfield had picked him up, bereft of wife, destitute, and had employed him. Now they were as close as brothers. Unlike brothers, they never quarreled. "'Your nightman out front?' asked Netfield. Clyde nodded, red veins glowing on his lumpy nose. He was heading for supper and had just downed his appetizer, a half-tumbler of rye. "'Send out to the restaurant for a plate of food and eat it on the bar,' said Netfield. "'All right. We'll want you on duty tonight.' "'If you say so,' said Clyde. "'Of course, but why?' "'We're going to be without help. 
I'm firing your new man. Well, said Clyde and set his teeth. What's he done? Nothing. I see, said Clyde. He said it softly and harshly. This don't sound like you, George, but a man can never tell. Now it comes out. Now you've got to show me you're the boss. I hire a man, just one man, because he's a friend, and you fire him. G.H. Netfield owns this place and does the hiring and firing and nobody else, and I'd better get it through my thick head. Is that it? Maybe you'll fire me next. Not likely, said Netfield gently. That old, unstable, beaten look was back in Clyde's eye, the look that Netfield had tried so patiently to erase. You say this spunky Martin is a friend of yours? What do you know about him? I didn't mean friend. I meant friend of a friend. He had a word-of-mouth recommendation from a fella I know down in Wyoming. He come to me hungry and helpless, just like I come to you, and we needed another man, and took him on. What was wrong with that? I'll tell you what was wrong with it. Spunky Martin isn't Clyde Gilday. Bring him in. Clyde left the room and returned with the banner's new nightman. He was about twenty-five, thin and bony and hunched. His hair was copper red, and his golden brown skin was splattered with freckles. His cheekbones were like walnuts, and behind them, tiny eyes twinkled in deep sockets. To about everyone but Netfield, he seemed merry and frolicsome. He was already known around town for his quick laugh and flapping quillwork vest. In three days, he had become a great favorite with the Blue Banner customers. Now he rocked on his heels, slapped his palms, and waited, grinning pleasantly. I think I'm going to fire you, said Netfield. But first, answer me this. Are you on the dodge? Spunky sobered. No, uh, and that's the God's truth. Then you're fired, said Netfield. Smiling a miserable, infectious smile, Spunky said, I don't understand you, Mr. Netfield. I try to do right. What's wrong? Well, to start with, I don't like you, Netfield said calmly. But that's beside the point. Before you go, want to make ten easy dollars? Greed came into Spunky's eyes, and caution. I'll pay you ten dollars to take off that vest, said Netfield. Spunky's hand splayed, and he stepped backwards. Now Clyde moved, and with the swiftness of a cat. Standing slightly to the rear of the red-haired kid, he grabbed his wrist in a clutch of steel, wrenched it around and up, and locked it between his shoulder blades. Spunky, his eyes glowing malevolently, made no effort to free himself or to defend himself. Gilday, with his free hand, brushed back the flaps of the quill work vest. Below Spunky's armpit, snuggled in a homemade holster, was a foot-long forty-four forty, an old army revolver. It had had, somewhere along the line, a change of butt plates. Its new butt plates were a blackish stag and bore three carefully filed notches, glinting in the kerosene lamplight. Turn him loose, Clyde, said Netfield. He won't bother you. Clyde said angrily, He's carrying enough powder to blast ten foot of caprock. He certainly is, said Netfield. But he's a professional, and it's not going to be wasted on us. He says he's not on the dodge, and I believe him. So he just carries it for business purposes. He's using us, using the blue banner for some reason. We don't want him behind our bar. To Spunky, Netfield said, All right, get out. I got this gun, said Spunky glibly, and I've been living from pillar to post and don't have no place to keep it, so I carry it. What's wrong with a young feller owning a gun? Get out, said Netfield. If you say so, said Spunky, but I want you to remember one thing. What's that? asked Clyde. I like you gentlemen, and I don't hold this again you. Move along, said Netfield. 
In the alley doorway, just before he vanished into the night, Spunky said, well, No harm done. I don't bear you no grudge. I'll forget it if you forget it. I like you. When he was gone, Clyde said, He likes us. He said so twice. He looked meaner than blood-crazed Comanche when he said it, but he said it. Netfield was thinking of other things. After a moment, he said, What's going on? He's strictly a businessman. What's he doing here in Kirkville? He's just a drifter, said Clyde. We're shut of him. Forget him. I think I'll take a little walk, said Netfield. He passed through the back door into the alley and turned onto Main Street, moving with slow dignity, a slim, almost shabby man, stiffly erect. People spoke to him, and he responded gently and gravely. In the corner of his mouth, he clenched the dead stub of his Cuban cigar. Night dust hung above the blazing lights of Main Street like a lavender veil beneath an indigo sky. Down the center of Main Street ran the railroad track, dividing the town north and south. In front of the Jerome house, four timber steps led down to the rutted road. He descended the steps, crossed the tracks, and came into the shadows of the south side of the street. Lights here were few and weak. Continuing south, he passed through an area of weeds and shanties and reached a cross street. The houses here were unpainted, slate gray in the starless night. This was South Congress Street, better known as Piano Street. It was a confederation of Kirkville's parlor houses. In the dictionary, they called them brothels. In Denver, they called them sporting establishments. But in Montana, they called them parlor houses. He turned in at the second house in the row, ascended to the narrow porch, and knocked. Behind him, like nets from the porch post, dead honeysuckle vines obscured him from the street. The door opened, and a perfumed young woman smiled at him, then blinked. Why, Mr. Netfield, she said graciously, I surely didn't expect to see you here. I didn't expect to ever be here, said Netfield politely. Is Miss Ernestine in? She led him down a hall, loud with nearby music. At the end of the hall, she said, In there, and left him. He stepped into a small, dirty kitchen. An elderly fat woman in black taffeta sat in a rocking chair, a flat iron between her bulbous knees and a hammer in her hand, cracking and eating walnuts. She had waxen, predatory eyes. At the sight of Netfield, however, they gleamed with warmth and friendship. He had done this woman a favor once. It had been a slight favor, but he had done it earnestly without condescension, and she had never forgotten it. He prized her friendship. Uh, sit down, she said. Have a ham sandwich and a glass of beer. He shook his head. They gazed at each other quietly. After a moment, he said, Miss Ernestine, I don't like to ask this question, but have there been any strangers, any special strangers along Piano Street lately? She spit out a piece of shell. Now, why would you ask that? He told her about Spunky Martin. Yes, she said at length, four of them up and down the street, coming and going, coming separately, then chumming up, then leaving separately. Four very tough boys indeed, and your Spunky Martin is one of them. Four, said Netfield. Four? Who are the others, and where do they hang out? One called Buttermilk Johnson works at the Jim Livery Stable. And then there's Buck Smith, who works for Colonel Crew in the wine room at the Antlers. The fourth one goes by the tag of Kruger. Doesn't work anywhere, just seems to wander around. He's far and away the worst of the lot. I don't know where he stays. If I find out, I'll send you word. Thanks, said Netfield, frowning. Amused at his concentration, she said, Montana is getting to be as bad as Baxter Springs, isn't it? Netfield grinned. They stared at each other in silent communication. 
That was one thing Netfield had in common with Miss Ernestine. She knew his hometown. She was one of the few people in Kirkfield who knew of Baxter Springs at its peak. It had been the first of the wild, booming railheads, before Abilene, Ellsworth, before Dodge City. This was a memory fifteen years ago, and a thousand miles away, but Miss Ernestine knew. Baxter Springs, in its brief day, had made ferocious history. Gunfighter and gunman, lawman and bandit, most of the great had visited it. "'Are you in trouble?' asked Miss Ernestine. "'I don't think so, no,' said Netfield. He walked to the door. "'But I have a feeling Kirkville is.' Main Street was already settling for the night when Netfield returned. He climbed the timber steps before the Jerome house, from road level to sidewalk level, and came to a stop before the hotel entranceway. To his left and right, up and down the portico boardwalk, merchants were closing, taking in their sidewalk displays of buggy whips and axe handles in headless vinegar barrels, pyramids of tinware, unhooking the denim work clothes suspended with hams and bacon slabs from the overhead portico beams. Saloons, gambling halls, and restaurants, now taking over, blazed with light. Worried, Netfield made a double decision. First, he had better send a relief man around to the Blue Banner to take a little load off Clyde. Then, of course, the intelligent and proper step was to inform Colonel Crewe. The Colonel was Kirkville's emperor. He owned not only the Antlers, but also the mammoth Kirkville feeding yards, about a third of Main Street, and a powerful backcountry ranch, the Hungry Butte Sea Bar Sea. He was a standoffish, hard-to-know man. Netfield disliked him, and scarcely bothered to nod to him. An ailing man, he was becoming increasingly enfeebled, and this disability certainly wasn't going to help the interview. Netfield was about to enter the Jerome house when the night clerk pushed through the door and stood beside him on the walk. He was a little pot-bellied man with a ceaselessly working mouth. Now words issued from it. Clyde is dead, George, he said. They got him laid out in Andy's back room. Netfield moistened his lips. After a long pause, he asked softly, what happened? He was shot in the rear of the gem livery stable, on that cleated ramp between the stalls and the main floor, in a gun fracas with that ex-barman of yours, Spunky Martin. He was alone, holding down the banner, said Netfield. He wouldn't have left it. Well, that's what he did. He locked it up, left a little card in the window, back soon, then went down to the livery stable and drew against a faster man. Spunky told the law that you people had fired him earlier in the evening and that Clyde wouldn't let it go at that tagged along and pushed him into a fight. It must have happened just that way. The new stableman at the gym, a fellow known as Buttermilk Johnson, was there and seen and heard the whole thing. Does that sound like Clyde? asked Netfield harshly. If you want an honest answer, it sure as hell does, said the clerk. Uncomfortably, he added, he was meaner than a pocket full of thistles, and you know it as well as I do. Netfield made no answer. Swinging about on his heel, he started up the walk. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Fourth Gunman. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.